I still have not figured out why God lets me do this. But I'll keep doing it until he stops me. Please turn in your Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians. I heard a long time ago, uh, as you find that, um, I don't remember who said this, but it was somebody smart, apparently, or maybe just catchy because I remembered it. Um, a, A smart young preacher will listen to a smart old preacher. And I took that to mean I could steal smart old preacher's sermons. That's the way I took that. And so I'm, I'm not ashamed to say tonight this will be a whole lot of plagiarism. Um, one of my all-time favorites is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We began at the beginning of this year at our church. We're going to have a quarterly evening message dedicated to the gospel, just preaching the gospel and trying to encourage growth and people to come. And so this is one of those messages. It's the gospel and where we will discuss the heart of the gospel, man's greatest need. And it doesn't take long to find out that man's greatest need is the atonement, the redemption that's found in Jesus Christ. There are millions of things that are not the gospel, but only one that is. Now, most of you here this evening, I believe, are believers. I'm going to talk to you as though you're not, because I don't know you. And also because I would hopefully, if, if, if my goal is reached, you will take from this message maybe some fire with you into your daily evangelism. That you might take something from what's said here, and especially the text. The text itself is a gospel track. That you would take it with you and find a way to share it. And it would be a matter of urgency to you. I'll, I'll give this little analogy to you that Spurgeon gives Imagine here the group is a a good-sized group. We could probably uh, start a village, and although I I don't agree with the former president's wife that it takes a village, we are about big enough to start one. And, And let us say that you put me in charge of getting food for this group. We compile our resources, and I have all the funds, the money, and it's my job to bring back to you food. And I go away for a while, and you've been getting hungry while I'm away, and I come back to you with sand. And you say to me, we sent you for food, what is this with the sand? And I say to you, you don't understand, I could get double the amount of sand for what food was costing where I went. Now surely all of you would be okay with that, right? Well, double, that's good. I mean, I know sale, I know a good sale when I see one, double is good. No, you know as well as I do that that would be ridiculous and you would be angry Because you sent me for nourishment. You sent me to bring back what you needed to survive. And sand is not what we need. I love being funny. I love telling jokes. I love having fun. And I have to be careful. One of the things uh, early in my ministry, in fact, it might have literally been the first day of me being a pastor. I was taken aside by my pastor, Pastor Heinrich, who knows your pastor. And he said, one problem that some people see with you, Johnny, is... You may not be grave enough. And I tell you, that got under my skin at that time. And that, what that means is people know me as a jokester and I like to have fun. And my family knows this and my friends know this and my church knows this. So I could have fun with you. I could tell pleasant stories. I could make you laugh. We could have fun tonight and you would all leave here after a belly full of laughs and then have ice cream and go home and feel great. But that would be sand. We need to hear the gospel. 
the life-giving gospel. And as much as I want to have fun, let us at least, at the very least, have fun in the word of God and be fed. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. The gospel of Jesus Christ, man's greatest need. This is going to be kindergarten theology tonight. I'm not going to wow you. I'm not going to give you any Greek participles. I'm not going to tell you what the iota subscript means. We're going to look at the gospel. And maybe it's been a while since you, Christian, have looked at the gospel. It's very easy for us to assume the gospel. Let, we should not do that. Let us not do that. So turn, if you haven't already, to Second Corinthians chapter 5, and let's pray, and we'll look at the text together. And Father, once again, we are embarking on something that could be missed. We've opened your word, and we've already challenged ourselves verbally, Father, that we're going to look at your word. We say it so lightly sometimes. We say God's word like it's a byword, like it's something simple. But, Father, your word is powerful and living, and it comes from you, the holy God. And the gospel, Father, being from your word is so precious to us. And we would ask, Father, that tonight you would rekindle that fire in us and and love for the simple gospel that Jesus died for sinners. And that we would never, ever take it for granted that you have done this wonderful thing for us. And, Father, as the people of God gathered in your name, we would ask that we would take with us this passage of Scripture, the the lessons of the Scripture, that we would share the gospel, that we would not again and again and again walk by our friends and neighbors and leave them in their lost condition, unprayed for and unevangelized. Nothing makes us more uncomfortable than to be challenged with the gospel and our sharing it. But, Father, we need it. Help us be like the one was who shared with us. That person who got uncomfortable and shared the gospel with us. Help us be like them and share with others. And teach us from your word how to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to do something strange. These are two of my all-time favorite verses. You know the book of Second Corinthians. If you don't, it's Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Some people try to say there's this third letter floating out there somewhere, and there might be, but it wasn't inspired or we would have it. Second Corinthians, Paul is really burying his soul as a pastor and somebody who's been attacked. His apostleship's come under attack. And at this section, after chapter 4, He really, I think in this verse, is really just giving the gospel, reminding these Corinthians who and what they were and what the gospel has meant to them or should mean to them even now. And so this is a gospel message from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And instead of me reading verses 20 and 21 and then explaining them, let's do something strange. Let's read verse 21 first. And then verse 20. I have a reason for doing that. Uh, I'll just leave you in the dark as to what it is, but it makes sense to me. Um, A lot of times, a lot of things make sense to me and not to other people. So I'll just leave you guessing and I I promise you that's a good idea what I'm doing. (laughs) 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 will give us the solution to man's problem. The answer to man's greatest need. And then the verse 20 we will look at secondly will actually tell us the need. So the first part of the sermon will be the answer to the problem and 
The second part will be the problem itself. I know that sounds strange, but uh, it, it will make sense maybe as we go. And if not, the text makes sense anyway, so don't let me confuse you. Verse 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The first thing we see as man's greatest need is the good old-fashioned substitutionary atonement. That's a big way of saying that Jesus becomes what we should have been. We heard it this morning in a special song about us. We should have been crucified. That's precisely what the gospel message here is saying. The first thing I want you to see about the solution to the problem is that the solution is a him, a person. Now that is very, very important. There's never been a person like Christ. There's never been anyone like him. If you're sick, you need a doctor. If your mechanic, if, you're, if your car is broken down, you need a mechanic. If your plumbing doesn't work, you need a plumber. And if you're a sinner, you need a savior. You don't need a program. You don't need a self-help book. You don't need Dr. Phil. You need a savior. And so first, right out of the gate, we see that our solution is a person. And just so you know, that's because the problem is personal. We have offended a person. Now, oftentimes we will uh, evaluate ourselves in terms of the law of God, but don't forget it's the God of the law who was offended. When we sinned, we uh, sinned against God. And so the only answer to that problem of a personal sin is a personal Savior, a person. So the person is key. The, the, The greatest need of mankind is not a program. It's not even church attendance, although that might help. It's not medicine. It's not a doctor. It's not the latest gadget sold on TV. What people need is a person. Him is in the text who knew no sin. Now, the second part is not just that the, the, the solution to the problem is a person, but it's very important if you have a problem that your solution does not also have the problem. Maybe you've never heard someone tell you this, but never take advice from someone who's more messed up than you. It's not very wise to listen to a blind person telling you where to go if you're blind. If Christ has sin, we are dead and have no hope. But Christ is the only person ever who has not had our problem. This is what makes him fitting to be our solution. He was God. He was called a liar. He was called a lunatic. But what he is is the son of the living God, God in the flesh. And because he is God, he does not have our problem. I read from Hebrews, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. What, how does the verse finish, class? Yet without sin. So we need to make sure we understand that our solution to the problem we will look at in a bit is a person, and that that person better not have our problem or he is no help to us. The needy can't meet needs. And our greatest need being in sin, having offended the living God, is someone who does not have our problem. Maybe you have not taken the good person test from Ray Comfort. We don't use Way of the Master. It's not our evangelism program. But there are some wonderful things that he does, and I love watching those videos of him out on the street evangelizing. He asks these wonderful questions from the law of God. Uh, uh, Have you ever lied? And, of course, everybody says yes. And then he responds with, what does that make you? And answer that question, what does that make you? A liar, okay. Have you ever stolen? What does that make you? A thief. 
Have you ever used God's name in vain or in a light way? Yes. What does that make you? Blasphemous. You're a blasphemer if you do that. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? What does that make you according to God's law and an adulterer? So you just called yourself a good person, but by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous adulterer. We all fail the good person test. And for us to have a solution to the problem of us failing the good person test, our Savior must not have that problem, or he was no Savior at all. So he's without sin. And God's standard is perfection. It's perfection. He says, be perfect. In fact, for the believer, when it says, be holy as the Father is holy, do you understand the requirement? Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. These verses are actually very condemning to us. We're very quick to say, oh, I'm just a sinner, I'm just a sinner, I'm just a sinner. But you need to understand what that means. That means you're in need. You're in desperate need of help. We don't want to be so quick to dismiss. They that are in the flesh cannot please God, Paul says. Cannot please God. That means no human being can please God in the flesh. That puts every human being in moral, ethical bankruptcy. And so who can bail them out? Who can help them if they cannot help themselves? Surely not another sinner. We need a Savior who doesn't have the same need that we do. And then finally, once you have a Savior, we see in Hebrews that Christ indeed is the great high priest who has no sin. He's a person. He does not have our problem. He is sinless. How can a sinless, perfect Son of God save a sinner? And then comes the beauty of the atonement, the beauty of the gospel. That word gospel is the Greek word euangelion. It means good message or good news. The beauty of the good news of Christ is how God has done that. And the text tells us, look at it. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. To be sin for us. To be sin for us. Do you ever just meditate on that phrase? The perfect, sinless Son of God, I remind you that when Christ, after his baptism, comes on the public scene, before he had ever done any work in the ministry, his father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Already perfectly pleasing to his father. Never needed to earn his father's blessing or love. The perfect, sinless Son of God is said by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 to be sin. How can that be? It doesn't say he became a sinner for us. It doesn't say he became sinful for us. It says he became sin. Well, I'll rewind history a bit and listen to what the prophet Isaiah says about this. Isaiah chapter 53, you know the text well, I'm sure. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Yet it pleased the Lord, verse 10 of Isaiah 53 says, to bruise him. Take that home with you. It pleased the Lord to bruise his son. 
If you read Leviticus 3 and 4, you will find those scenes that to me, every, I, they're gut-wrenching to me. Every time I read them, they get me. I think of when we do communion and I think of the idea of Christ, his broken body. And I think, I always flash back to the, the precursors, the shadows that were looking forward to Christ when the men of Israel would lay their hands on that little lamb and say, please, Lord, kill my sin in this lamb, not in me. Put my sin on the lamb and kill my sin in that lamb so that I don't have to die. And I need a savior. So when I hear that and I read that over and over again and I think of all those lambs, all those lambs looking forward to the lamb of God when John says, behold the lamb of God that actually, he doesn't say it but it's there, (laughs) taketh away the sin of the world. That one day there would be a lamb that really and truly took away the sin of the world. It makes sense of what Peter says when he says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we were healed. This idea of taking my sin... My sin, the sins that I've committed that I know about, the sins that I've committed that I don't know about, I wasn't raised in church, folks. I have scars. My fa- there, uh, just to give you a hint, there are eight divorces in my two parents. The baggage and the garbage of never having been taught, of growing up and waiting to become an adult. You think of the Pioneer Club right now and those kids being in my opinion, rescued from a life that I had, and I hear the gospel and I say, wow, how could he do that for me? Why would he do that for me? Take my sin, my ugliness, my offense to the living God, take that off of me and put it on his son and make his son my sin. What kind of love would do that? Amazing love would do that. And that's the gospel, that God would take him who knew no sin ever and make him sin for us. And don't forget in both the Peter passage and in Paul here that we would become the righteousness of God, that we would live now and show why he did that. Why why do we move forward? Why do we sing praises to him? Because we're showing him our great gratitude for the gift that he's given us in the gospel. So our solution is a person. Our solution does not have our problem. And our solution is actually traded places with us and becomes sin for us. Now let's look at how we need that. And you will go now backwards one verse to verse 20 of 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says to the Corinthians, Now, we, now then we, Paul himself and, and those in the ministry, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Then he goes on to say, because or for he made him who knew no sin. Be reconciled to him because he's the, the only way to reconcile. That's verse 21 coming after verse 20. So the first thing is, now I just said to you a minute ago, a few minutes ago, I said to you that somebody that has our problem cannot solve our problem. Yet Paul here is calling himself and the ministers like him and we who share the gospel by application, ambassadors, telling people that we have the solution to the problem. (laughs) Now that might sound contradictory. How can we solve the problem if we have the problem? And I think Paul gives us the answer here. I can tell you 
Who solves the problem? I often will say, and I've had people and close friends too say to me, who do you think you are, Johnny? Who do you think you are telling me I'm going to hell? I had a really good friend who we had a long friendship when I was a kid and then we lost touch and then later we started up a conversation again and it was going and going and going. He's a very strong atheist guy. And then we were going back and forth in this long, supposedly apologetic battle. And finally, when he said, you know, Johnny, I'm, I'm grateful because you're not like my other Christian friends that tell me I'm going to hell. And I said to him, then I apologize because I should have said that to you a long time ago. You are going to hell. And he says, then I guess we're not friends anymore. This is a 20-year friend. And so I asked him, I begged him, please, before you cut off the friendship, will you please acknowledge that from my perspective, that is the loving, merciful thing to do, to tell you to, on Christ's behalf, tell you to listen to the gospel. Do you understand that I don't want you to go to hell, and that doesn't bring me any joy that you're going to hell? I don't, I, in fact, ideal situation is you go to heaven where I'm going to be with the Lord Jesus. That would be ideal. Do you understand that? Do you acknowledge it? Yes, I acknowledge it. We still lost contact. So I, in that sense, am an ambassador, not somebody who is claiming to be sinless, not somebody who claims to know more than my friend did at the time, but somebody who can clearly say, like you can, hey, I'm a beggar and I know where to find bread. And you want to see an effective look, that look on people's face where they say, wait a second, that makes sense. If you ask your friends, if I were hungry, would you help me find food? What do you think most people say to that? Nope, I'd let you starve. No, they say, yes, I would help you find food. Well, you're hungry and you don't know it and I'm trying to tell you where the food is. The bread of life. The water of life. I'm trying to tell you where the food is. That's what this thing called the gospel message is. You're hungry and in need of food. I think of that story in Mark chapter 2. One of my all-time favorite passages in the Bible where... You think of those four friends, and usually they're the guys that make the Sunday school material for the kids. You know, the flannel graph is about the four good friends that bring the paralytic to Jesus, you know. That's the how to be a good friend. Don't be like a bad friend like Job's friends. Be a good friend like the four guys that bring the paralytic to Jesus. And you know the story. They get there to the house there in Capernaum, and the, the, it's just jam-packed. There's people wall-to-wall, and then outside the walls, and they can't get their friend inside. It's so packed. And Jesus is in there teaching. The word, the Greek word that's used for Jesus' teaching is an interesting word, because I think it was more like a Bible study than Jesus preaching. I think he was conversing with the people. And they can't get to him, so what do they do? They climb probably around to the top of that house, and they start... Literally, the text says they unroofed the roof. And this is not like a thatch roof with palm leaves. This is a real roof with lath and clay. And they start pulling that roof apart. And you can imagine Jesus teaching inside the house. And the roof starting to come in, right? It wasn't easily distracted. And then these good friends, the good four friends, lower their friend down, don't they? And their, their friend gets lowered down on his bed. I think it's called a crabaton in Greek. It's the yucky bed, you know. They lower their friend down, and here he comes down through the, the, the hole in the roof. And we all know the story, right? The very first thing that Jesus says is, get up and walk. Is that right? That's not right. That's not right at all. In fact, the thing that Jesus says is actually very startling. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Can you imagine doing that to a paralyzed person in our day? going to the hospital and seeing that sick person laying in the bed and pastor goes in there and he says, 
You need your sins forgiven. That would, we would think of that as cruel. But do you see, Jesus met that man's need that day, and if he never walked a step in his life from that day forward, his greatest need was met to have his sins forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, you know the rest of the story when he says, after he hears the grumbling in the hearts, only Jesus can do that, by the way. He knows the heart of men. We think we know the heart of men and judge the heart of men, but Jesus actually knew it. <laughs> he hears those scribes there grumbling, and he says, which is easier to say, take up your bed and walk, or your sins are forgiven you. For God, they're both equally easy. And he says, so that you know that the Son of God has power on earth to forgive sins, take up your bed and walk. And he proved his power to forgive sins and gave that man his greatest need. And I suggest to you those four friends in that story were great friends, not because of their original motivation of healing of the man, but of the final result is they brought their friend to Christ as ambassadors. Because he couldn't walk, they carried him to Christ. They had a lesson to learn that day too. I know where the bread is. I know where the bread of life is, and I know that you're hungry. And you might think that you're not hungry, but you're just used to fast food. You're used to what this world has to offer. You think it's good for you, and it's not. Let me take you to bread as an ambassador. And it's not just that we can be ambassadors or the solution or the, 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 the getting the people to see their need is through ambassadors. It's also the type of ambassadors. You see it here. It's very, very strong in the original in verse 20. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. These are two very strong, begging, imploring words. And if you haven't figured it out, Americans don't like to beg. Americans are too proud to beg. We, we are above begging, and we wouldn't dare beg anybody. That is beneath us. We're proud to be American. And, and we think everybody should work for what they get, and we think everybody should be strong, and everybody should pull themselves up by their bootstraps and be self-reliant, which is all exactly opposite of the gospel. Would you beg your child off of a ledge? Would you beg your friend out of the fire? Like Spurgeon says, if people are going to go to hell, don't let them go unprayed for, as you heard me pray, and unevangelized. At least let them go with us hanging around their ankles, he says. We're not used to begging, and we're too proud to beg, but in the gospel, we need to beg. When, when was the last time you looked someone in the eye and said, please believe the gospel? Please. You don't understand what awaits you. You don't understand what's coming. You don't understand what you're saying right now by rejecting the gospel of Christ. Please believe it. Please take Christ seriously. Look at the word of God and repent of your sins. We often think that we are doing the job of evangelism by living the, the Christian life. That's what we usually say. I'll, I'll preach the gospel by my life. And I love what one preacher says when he talks about that. He says it's like a wonderful television commercial where everything is so beautiful and looks so wonderful and the family in the commercial is getting along and the sun is setting over the water and everybody just seems to love each other and then at the end of the commercial they don't tell you what the product is. The lifestyle evangelism. The gospel is words. Those words are that Christ died for sinners. And we need to share that word. And I know it's fearful. I promise you I understand the fear in starting a gospel conversation. I promise you that. I understand the fear. But I've seen so many lives changed by the gospel that the 
the excitement of seeing someone come to that relationship where they glorify the living God is starting in, thankfully, after 20 years nearly of Christianity, is starting to overpower the fear, <laughs> where I fear more them not getting to be in God's presence and glorify God than I do my own reputation. I'm going to give you some passages, and I want you to think in terms of pleading, the urgency in these verses. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to me read. Hebrews 4, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Fear, because you could come short of it, the author says. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. The author of Hebrews is saying, two people heard the gospel. One of them did not have faith when they heard it. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying to David, Today, after so long a time as it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And Paul says in that great Mars Hill sermon at the Areopagus, In the times of this ignorance God winked at or overlooked, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all, in that he raised him from the dead. Just last week, did you all not celebrate the resurrection when we did? The resurrection of Christ, and we stand on it, and you apologists love to talk about it, and the proofs of it, and, and you love to kill the swoon theory, and you love to show how certain and full and awesome the resurrection is. Judgment is just as certain as the resurrection. Hell is just as real as heaven. Eternity is just as long on both sides. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. Just as sure as he raised Christ from the dead, judgment is coming. And he will judge by him. But those things which God before hath shewed by the mouth of all of his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath also fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Repent while you can, the Bible says. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. This whole lost world will get what they have coming. We heard that this morning from Asaph. Zephaniah, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near. And hasteth, hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty men shall cry there bitterly. The day of the Lord is coming, and there will be bitterness when it comes. It's no wonder that Paul, in this very same chapter, of the very same book we're looking at, says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. The urgency of the gospel I know you're like me, and I give out a lot of tracts. Incidentally, I gave uh, the, this morning's bulletin. That's all I had of your church to the guy that was taking out the garbage at the hotel. And I do it too. I have little cards in my wallet, and I hand them to the folks at Home Depot or whatever, and I say, read that for me. And I feel oftentimes convicted about my lack of urgency. I believe very strongly in the sovereignty of God and the doctrines of grace. I believe very strongly in the doctrines of predestination and election. But the means by which God brings all that to pass is the preaching of the gospel and the sharing of the gospel. 
And we don't know who are elect. (laughs) He does. We leave his part to him and we take our part. And so we are ambassadors. We implore and we beg. And the thing we beg is at the end of verse 20. Here it is. Be ye reconciled to God in the imperative mood. And I have to tell you, I stand back and I say, fearfully and humbly, knowing the Lord is paying attention. I could fool you right now and you could think, oh, he, could, he is really a great evangelist. He's a great preacher. I could tell you all the wonderful times I've shared the gospel and, and the, the many times I've been bold out with my faith. But the real truth is that last line tears me apart. We need to address the will of people when we share the gospel. There is a difference in saying Christ died for sinners and will you believe in Christ and have your sins forgiven. That is scary. I know it is. But that's what Paul is doing here and I believe that's what all faithful ambassadors do. Where are you with Christ? Have you ever repented and believed the gospel? And you and I both know, if you look in the mirror and ask that terrible, dreadful question, what do we have to lose? The answer is nothing. The answer is we have nothing to lose, everything to gain by asking those questions. I know it's humbling, and I'm there with you. Just so you know, these sermons have to go in before they go out. Be reconciled. This means to bring estranged parties together. Reconciliation has two parts. It has the taking away of the thing that separated and the bringing together of the separated parties. So whatever separated us from God, sin, needs to be dealt with. And we saw our solution in Christ. He became sin for us. You can go read in in Colossians chapter 2 about our debt that we owed God, the handwriting of requirement against us being nailed to the cross. Our sin is taken out of the way in the cross, and then we are brought together Because now we are made righteous and we can be in the presence of the living God because we are righteous. We are given the righteousness of Christ. This is that great and marvelous doctrine of justification. In Adam, we are separated from God and in Christ, we are reconciled to God. In Adam, all die, but in Christ, all are made alive. So this reconciliation is necessary if you're going to have a a relationship with God. I remember reading a a paper for seminary, and I remember vividly being absolutely shocked. I've always felt of myself that I'm a horrible, rotten sinner, even before I knew that. (laughs) And I remember one of the great arguments that had happened in the last decade with reconciliation, the Christian doctrine of reconciliation, was that understanding of God being reconciled to man, and they don't mean that in the correctly theologically way, by the way. They don't mean that we do need God reconciled to us. They mean, you poor sinners who might be angry at God, we need to handle that issue. As though God has offended man, and that needs to be fixed. That's not our problem. Our problem is that we have offended a holy God, and we need that fixed. And reconciliation is our offense being taken out of the way by the cross of Christ, so that we could be made righteous and in relationship with him. You know the verses, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. I don't know about you, but I've I've never really felt like I was even getting close to those two. (laughs) Love God all the time, always. I have a question for you. What were you doing last Tuesday at 4.36 p.m.? Can you remember 4.36 p.m. last Tuesday? 
If you can't remember loving the Lord your God with all your might at 4.36 p.m., you probably weren't doing it. How about 4.37? How about 4.38? How about 6 a.m. the next morning? Loving God with all you are. All you are. Any failure to do that is a robbery of his glory. For all have sinned and fall short or come short of the glory of God. Do you know that's the standard? The glory of God is the standard that we fall short of. So how are you doing? How, are, are you, Christian, in need of reconciliation? Did you know the gospel didn't stop when you got saved? Your need for the gospel is an eternal need because of the eternal offense that your sin caused. So you have to keep that in mind that you are saved, always saved. Being perfected, like the author of Hebrews says, being cleansed. It's a present tense reality, a continuous reality that you are reconciled to God. It didn't just happen when you got saved, when you repented of your sin. You were always being rescued by Christ. Not that you could ever lose that. I'm a, I'm a, a, a my, the P is firmly in my tulip, okay? But I want you to understand that that need of the gospel, we never stop needing the gospel as believers. And clearly, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you've never been reconciled to God, you need to heed the warning, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God and be thoroughly reconciled to God. Don't play with this. Don't say, well, I I think I'm all right. I've been coming to church. Uh, If you've never repented of your sins, repent of your sins. Turn from your sins. Put faith in Jesus Christ, your total confidence in the work of the cross, the atonement, his substitution for you. I'm so excited that God isn't finished saving people. He's not done yet. And I don't care what the guy on the radio says, the church is not finished. We're still in the gospel-sharing business. And we need to be busy. You know the story of the Philippian jailer. He asked the question we all wish someone would ask right you know in that verse when it says be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you we're all waiting for that question aren't we has anyone ever come up to you and said those words please tell me about the hope that's within you we're getting further and further away from the cross the world is becoming darker and darker and less and less chance of someone walking up to you and saying tell me about the hope that lies within you it's your, your chances are dwindling if that's what you're waiting for But this man says, as he is about to kill himself for having lost his prisoners, he thought, what must I do to be saved? And what is Paul's answer from the jail? Is his answer, well, you need to go to church. And you need to wear the holy fabric, polyester. You need to uh, make sure you tithe. You need to make sure you have the right... You can fill in the blank there. You need to do all the right things. You need to get in line. You need to be like us. You need to act good and you need to stop doing bad. Is that the answer that Paul gives? What is the man's need? He asks a simple question, a childish question. What must I do to be saved? And Paul's answer is believe on the Lord Jesus. That is the simple gospel and it's never changed. He is the substitution. He is the only fit substitution who can take my sin. This is the greatest need of mankind. It's the only way for man to be in relationship with the living God. It's the only way for man to glorify God. He will never glorify God. He's fallen short of the glory of God. And so we need this glorious Savior to bring us back to be able to glorify God. That's the gospel. 
Are you tired of hearing the gospel yet? Or does this old story mean so much to you like it does me? Every time I do the the communion and I look at those verses in 1 Corinthians, I'm just amazed by it. Every time, I still get a little bit trembly at the thought that Johnny Sloan can have his sins forgiven and that God would see fit to save my family and to bless me as he has. I just still can't seem to grasp it, why he would do that for me. And I think that maybe that's why I love these doctrines so much. I I told the pastor that this afternoon. The reason I love these doctrines, the doctrines of grace so much, is because I know I'm hopeless without them. The reason the cross means so much to me is I know my life without it. I was running the other way. And for him to reach out and rescue me and pull me to himself just means everything to me. I want somebody else to experience that. I want more people to know that, that forgiveness found in Christ. Let's pray. Father, now as we dismiss, we'd ask that we would be bold, that we would share your word, that we would share the faith of Christ, that we would point people to the Savior, that it would no longer be a burden to us, but it would be free and loving and a happy thing to share the gospel. Father, would you do that work in us? Would you humble us? Would you encourage us by your spirit to just take those opportunities that the people here would be excited about being reconciled to God and the thought of others might motivate us all to share more? We thank you, Father, for Paul's words here that are challenging yet freeing, that we are indeed reconciled to you. And we'll bless your name for that. And we say these things and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.